Welcome to Culture Crossings, a podcast for globally mobile millennials with cross-cultural identities. We share stories about their identity, wellness, and career development for young professionals on the move. In season two, we are curating a series of interviews with other globally mobile millennials on how they are navigating their careers around the world. In this episode, we have Jason Hun, who is a postdoctoral research scientist in Danino Lab and the Young Lab at Columbia University in New York. He specializes in biomedical engineering, and prior to his current position, he completed his PhD in the joint program by Harvard University and Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT. There can be many career choices in science, but today we'll focus on the academic career journey. We hope you'll be inspired by his cross-cultural background and his passion for science and teaching. Welcome, Jason. Hello. Thank you so much for coming to our show. Again, it was really great to meet you and your wife, Susie, through my husband, because they both work in the same lab. And we really wanted to thank you for listening to our show since it launched last year. And it's really our pleasure to have um, one of our listeners to the show. And so it'll be really great if you could uh, start by sharing us about your background and places you've lived before. Sure. Yeah. So hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Jay Sung, and I am a research scientist pursuing an academic career in biomedical engineering. And my research interest specifically is in uh, nanotechnology, molecular programming, and synthetic biology. So in terms of my cross-cultural background, uh, both my parents are from South Korea but I was actually born in the U.S. while my father was getting his PhD at the University of Pittsburgh. And, but we moved back to Korea when I was two, so I really don't remember any of my time in Pittsburgh. But it has always been a part of my background growing up in Korea, knowing that you know, I have a U.S. citizenship, even though I never kind of knew what that really meant, like being an American. Uh, and... When I was 13, my father told me, told my family that we were moving to Belgium uh, because of his job, uh, which made me at the time very upset because I uh, always thought that I would live in Korea forever. And I didn't even know where Belgium was back then. And uh, it was actually interesting to hear in your podcast, uh, your experience, Asuka, uh, because you actually prepared for your move. But in my case, I kind of just jumped headfirst into another country. So I lived in Belgium for three years and went to an international school there. And it was difficult adjusting at the time, but eye-opening at the same time. And I was eager to see and learn more about the world outside of my immediate surrounding after experience in living abroad by the time our Time there was over, um, my father gave me choice. Uh, so I was 16 then and he told me that I could move back to Korea with my parents or I could move to New York where my uncle and aunt lived. Um, so I always heard that the US, especially New York was a melting pot of cultures. It was very fascinating at the time for me because I finally got the kind of taste of the world, I suppose, outside of Korea, where I used to uh, spend mo most of my time as a child. So I decided to move to New York, uh, where I went to high school and also finished my undergraduate degree at the City College of New York in Harlem. And then I moved to Boston to get my PhD at MIT and moved right back to New York for my postdoctoral training at Columbia University. It was interesting because my first first time I moved abroad was not by choice right mm -hmm. and I certainly kind of hated it and I think it was kind of um interesting to hear about uh one of your podcast episode about culture shock right mm -hmm. and I just remember thinking that okay I definitely didn't have honeymoon phase in the beginning because I just didn't did not like the idea at all and I wonder if that's how it was for you as well, Phoebe, uh, hearing your story uh, of moving to Philippines. 
Yeah, I think um, that was the similar thing because for me, my family also wanted to move to Canada. It wasn't my choice, but I think, you know, after you just adapt and then, you know, you kind of see the bigger world and then, and then, you know, you kind of, well, for me, I kind of just became curious as well and just started to really love traveling. But I guess for you, what, um, was there a specific point was there like an epiphany moment that you know you realize that oh you know i actually kind of like this lifestyle of you know kind of experiencing a different culture or living someplace else uh, so that's interesting that you ask because i think that just because my very first experience was was just so sudden that i think um from that point on i adopted this kind of just go ahead and do type of um, attitude. So to an extent, I think I lost a little bit of my introspectiveness uh, after that experience because, well, first of all, uh, language barrier, for instance, I did not really speak English. Um, and I went to international school. Uh, I remember my first experience was like, this nice guy was asking, what's up? And then I, at the time, didn't know what that meant. I was wondering, is he, you know, cursing at me or saying something bad. So it was that level of like not being able to understand. And I had to really adapt to just being able to go ahead and do whatever I need to, even if I didn't completely understand. So to answer your question, I don't think I actually had that kind of epiphany moment um, part because I kind of lacked capacity to really go back and then think about it. Um, but I think it was just gradually, I just realized that I really enjoyed it. And, and I think I just uh, decided to uh, live this kind of lifestyle, I suppose, uh, being exposed and learning new things. It was certainly fun. Definitely. So in that sense, I think you embody both the shock of moving by circumstance and then later on making conscious decisions. So I think you're a really unique blend of both. Yeah, I would yeah, say so I was definitely very uh, lucky to given both cho uh, both situations because I think I, there were definitely a lot to learn from both experiences. Mm -hmm. So on that note, you know, what prompted you to choose your career path? Because um, you decided to stay in New York, right? Um, did you think about going somewhere else, maybe back to Belgium or Korea, or, you know, what made you kind of decide on your path and like which school to study? I guess I thought about a lot. So I, even until like beginning of my college years, I think I thought that I would go back to Korea one day. And <laughs> I met my wife uh, who is originally from New York uh, lived her whole life in New York. Um, so, and her, most of her family is uh, in New York as well. So, um, so I met her as a sophomore college student. And I think that definitely had a big impact on, uh, using New York as my home base, uh, somewhere I can always go back to, at least in the U S right. I visited my family, uh, back in Korea often as often as possible, uh, like in the summer or something like that. But I think that I also felt uh, more familiarity, I suppose, with a place like New York, where it's not just, you know, being in the US, right? Uh, New York definitely embodies the diversity and just different cultures and different kind of people all live here. And I think I think New York is in that sense very attractive to me coming from my background and kind of the personality and um, lifestyle I have developed. So I think I think that kind of puts me right back in New York, um, even after I moved to Boston for my PhD and I came back, I think partially because um, there is some kind of yeah <laughs> gravity that pulls me towards New York City, I think. Um, I definitely thought about, you know, other places as well, but, um, I'm not, I'm not sure where I will end up in the future, of course, 
but yeah, that's, that's how I, I guess, ended up in New York. Yeah, I mean, New York, you know, would be one of the places definitely that's very friendly to people of diverse backgrounds, for sure. Yeah, and I think it's very important to me, um, you know, as a person and also as a researcher as well, to be able to be in this kind of environment um, because diversity drives innovation as well. And I think that being in New York City puts me in a very uh, lucky position. Yeah, it's really good to hear how your personal background with cultural diversity and the city's diversity are both working together to sort of continue to shape you as a person, but also to, I suppose, shape your career as a scientist. Could you maybe tell us about what prompted you to pursue science? So, um, well, when I was a kid, at least, I wanted to be a farmer. <laughs> oh, wow, that's interesting. But, yeah. but then, um, you know, as I grew up more, uh, I, would say, I, I would say it was a little bit of both. Um, happened organically, but also quite a bit of planning. Um, knowing my father had a PhD in economics, for instance, uh, influenced me in that I always knew higher education was in my career trajectory. So I was I wasn't sure what it you know what it would be as a kid at least and I I always liked math and physics growing up um, but I also felt more tangible benefit of medicine to the society and I always wanted to choose a career where I could be useful and when I brought this up to the guidance counselor at my high school uh, she told me that it sounds like biomedical engineering may be a perfect fit for me. So I decided to major in biomedical engineering in college. And during my college years, knowing that I wanted to pursue PhD as well, uh, I started doing research, which is important for um, getting into PhD program and whatnot. And I tasted the thrill of asking questions that no one has the answer for and actually finding the answer myself. Um, so I was instantly hooked and that's when I decided that I will pursue my career in uh, academic research. Great. It sounds like you're really intrigued by the process of forming a question and pursuing it, finding the answer that no one knows. And I was actually fascinated. The guidance counselor at your international school, I believe in Belgium, knew no, about... It was where... uh, my actually in New York. Oh, in uh, New York. Okay. Yeah, in, okay. Yeah, in Austin High School. <laughs> Oh, wow. Okay. It's, yeah. it's fascinating because I didn't, I mean, yeah, like, I don't think my high school counselor knew what biomedical engineering was. So, yeah, it's, it's great that you had a sink there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's sure. true because usually, you know, high school guidance counselors, they would kind of, you know, propose more, I guess, like, professions that you know people usually think about like they wouldn't really say biomedical engineering i i was definitely really really lucky growing up i mean there were other instances like my middle school teacher um she thought that i would be a good fit for this um like engineering and innovation program it, this was back when i was in korea and she put me into this weekly um program that uh, i attended as a middle school student, I, I actually honestly didn't have any idea what I was doing back then. But now I realize it definitely formed my interest in this direction, kind of like inventing something new and exploring and actually doing hands-on thing to make something useful. Um, yeah, I, 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 can, I can never emphasize that this influence from you know, adults and other people in life really shape who you are and also what kind of career you actually eventually pursue. Yeah, so, um, you know, with with that in mind, um, you know, I'm not too familiar about like the um, career path for academia, but could you tell us a little bit more about what does an academic career in science look like? So I can I can tell you just in terms of general um, perspective and not to discourage any aspiring uh, academic research scientists. But uh, my experience can be summed up as a lot of failures with 
very, very high rewards mixed in here and there. So I, I guess I got used to failed experiments that I didn't realize until uh, my wife told me about how I would come home and tell her uh, very plainly about the failed experiments that I have been working on for months. And, and this was not just my experience, it's a shared experience among you know, my friends during my PhD, for instance. It, it requires a lot of time and energy, but, but when you succeed, it feels really good. And I know that all those failed experiments led me to the success. So it's all worth, uh, all those things were worth it. And um, I think an academic career in science also requires you to move sometimes in pursuit of finding the right place to conduct research of your interest. So I have worked with many scientists who moved away from their home countries for their research, for instance. And I also have done um, short research internship in Germany during my college years as well. And I, I really love and enjoy this aspect of my career, I think. I guess the process of being resilient over failures, that part sounds very familiar to me because, yeah, my, that's also, that's my husband also talks about, yeah, like it's really the buildup of, oh, this didn't go well, that didn't go well. And finally, <laughs> like, even if it's something small that goes good, you just got to celebrate that because it's, it's not, research isn't clean. I guess that's what the message was. Yeah, um, I, I didn't even know that until, actually, uh, talk to my wife about like just the questions in general um and you know she she was just kind of telling me you know i don't think you realize this but this is my experience so i think from inside being a researcher you don't even know like this is what you're doing or what you're going through but from outside is kind of painfully obvious i think <laughs> yeah yeah so can you talk more about that i mean how do you deal with failure? Like, do you have any, I don't know, coping mechanisms or any advice on, you know, how to deal with failure? At least for me, I guess, kind of remembering the past success despite all the failures. So it makes you a little resilient, I think. And because it's so rewarding when you get there, um, I have the drive, I think, to get there despite all the kind of failures or, you know, um, things that make my life hard. But I, I would be lying if it wasn't frustrating at times. Um, and I mean, in addition to kind of like a lot of failures and failed experiments, for instance, um, it's also hard not to feel like I'm perpetually a college student in this career path so far. So I've been training for more than a decade now. And it's sometimes discouraging when like someone asks me, so when are you actually getting a like real job? <laughs> <laughs> but I think at, at the end of the day, um, this is uh, following my passion. And I, I don't think many people can really say that about their career. Um, so that really makes me uh, wake up in the morning, even if there was some failed experiments last night or yeah, early morning. Uh. What would you say would be, you know, if you want to be a research scientists like what are the character traits that you should have because you know it seems that you really have to deal with a lot um and you have to put in years and years of work and i mean obviously the rewards are huge but it's almost like you know like a gamble <laughs> sometimes you know like you you kind of <laughs> you know you put in a lot of work and and yeah i mean there would be a huge word at the end but then at the same time there's a lot of uncertainty like what are the character traits do you think would be you know one of the most important things to be a research scientist 
and oh, wow. this is can come from your personal perspective like it doesn't have mm -hmm. to be you know you're not trying to uh generalize the traits that future scientists need to have For coming sure. from your own perspective yeah like what characteristics or traits do you think that helped you to be where you are now it's an interesting question um there can be many answers i think i would say that actually one of my characteristics that I think is helpful is, I think, I, yeah, I mentioned this before, but I kind of, when I first moved to Belgium, I kind of adopted uh, just do type, do kind of a attitude in life. And I think I don't dwell too much on like things that happened before as much as some people may. And it's something that my friends in uh, during PhDM so uh, told me how it seems like uh, you can just easily forget about uh, like failed experiments or whatever, and then just you know, move on. And I think that my yeah, experience kind of completely shocked by getting introduced with the new culture and then just having to adapt. That made me very resilient and and be able to kind of just move on whatever happens. So I think that's the one characteristic that really helped me uh, in this career uh, where, it, yeah, it's a lot of gamble, a lot of um, uncertainty, but I mean, I, I guess I learned early in life that that's just life. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. So, I mean, you know, your um, uh, background, you know, with that whole culture shock of moving to Belgium definitely seems like it helped you later on so that's yeah really for good. sure the i one one thing i really take away from the experience is yeah resilience for those who may be new to research or scientific um career path maybe could you explain the research that you mentioned that is i guess important for college students to have when getting into phd and then what exactly is postdoc? Because at least for me, um, I, uh, yeah, I didn't really know what research meant um, when I was starting college. And yeah, so it would be maybe nice to hear, yeah, what that process is like. Yeah, sure. So um, again, I was very lucky uh, to have uh, many people supporting me throughout my you know, career. And uh, when I first um, joined City College of New York. I was lucky to meet a professor who really encouraged me to uh, early on get involved with research and essentially guide me to, you know, this is kind of what you will want to do if you want to get into PhD program. Because PhD really is, or at least in my field, is I think of it as like license to do research. Um, and in order to pursue that, you need to have some certain amount of experience in research, right? So um, that's why I was involved in yeah, research since I was yeah freshman year in college. And I certainly think that uh, doing internship in Germany, for instance, uh, helped and you know, continuing to do research as an undergrad uh, at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center definitely helped me. Uh, I mean, it's different, many different things, but one is, you know, putting in your resume that, okay, I have a research experience. And, you know, if you were able to you know, publish a manuscript or present in the conference, that adds to your resume. And on top of that, another important aspect of getting into a PhD program, I think, is recommendation letter. And through this research uh, experience, you talk to the real scientists who have actually made it and they are the ones who will be writing your recommendation letter. And that, that carries a lot of power, I think, when it comes to getting into yeah, PhD program. So I think doing research is yeah, yeah, two things, yeah, resume and also finding mentors as well as, you know, kind of champion who will uh, speak on behalf of you and write a recommendation letter um, guaranteeing that this I, I am competent candidate for your PhD program. 
And um, yeah, I think postdoc is very foreign term for probably most people. Um, it's just my opinion, but I think that uh, a part of academic career path, the kind of one scary part I found out once I decided that I want to um, pursue this career is that it's quite narrow. Um, so you, you know, you go to college and then you get your PhD. And at least back in the days, that's when you probably became professor. Um, but the, the structure of academia is that usually professors uh, eventually get tenured, which means that they will be stay there until they retire. So you can imagine that that can really kind of stagnate a little bit in a sense, in terms of number at least, like, you know, there isn't as much kind of refreshing of a uh, pool of people working in academia. So you can certainly grow the, the academic field as much as possible, but there will be a limit. And I think postdoc is kind of what happened as a result where there is a bottleneck uh, to become a professor because, you know, there will be uh, tenured professors and then until either those professors retire or uh, schools get more funding so they can actually provide extra uh, position, you know, it will be hard to get a job. And in order to continue the research, but at the same time, you know, uh, build your uh, resume and your career, I think postdoctoral uh, research scientists is kind of position that uh, became a very routine thing where you do right after a PhD to further your uh, research and uh, widen your horizon and also at the same time trying to yeah, get into the job market to become a professor. Thank you so much. I think that really helps us understand how postdoc sort of emerged and definitely there's been concerns that academic positions are really getting competitive um, because there's so many schools in the world um, and then you know you have all these graduate students so um, but again it's really encouraging to hear that you're you're keep on doing what you're doing because really um, ultimately it'll be so amazing if you could work for your passion and what's meaningful to society so yeah maybe um this is just out of curiosity, but I guess in your case, it sounds like um, your father had a PhD, so your family knew what the academic career path may look like. But then still, I feel maybe among some of the uh, people in the audience, they may not have the mutual understanding about what that means between families or friends. So at the end of the day, it's your, it's your decision. Um, but in your case, sort of like what helped you to think this is what I want to do um, when academic path is seen as something unconventional from others um, who may, you know, think, oh, that's not, you know, work, work because so and so, even though, you know, PhD and postdoc programs that are funded, actually, like, I can't tell for all of the programs, but for science, it seems that, you know, um, once you get into a program that funds you, you do get some stipend and things. But for many people, yeah, it's it's kind of hard sometimes to communicate that. That is a legitimate, I guess, career. Um, yeah. Maybe if you have any yeah thoughts on that. Uh, but I hope I'm kind of... Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I, I totally get what you... Because I think you experienced this kind of similar thing, right, Asuka? Um, that maybe like some people around you kind of didn't understand what an academic career would look like. But yeah, it'd be yeah. great to know the reaction from people around you as well, Jason. Okay. Um, so despite my father having a PhD, um, so he had, he had a PhD in economics. And uh, at the time, he was already working for the Bank of Korea, which is... Um, equivalent to Federal Reserve in the US. And his PhD was kind of part of his career. Oh, I see. Yeah. So I almost kind of like, you know, you go to, um, you join a company and then they will sometimes fund your um, MBA and, mm -hmm. then, and then you come back and then you continue work. Right. 
And I think that was sort of like that for my father. Um, so he finished his PhD and then he went back to Korea and then he just continued on his post in the bank. And so that said, I think uh, my family didn't completely get it either still. Even though my, so my brother also got a PhD in mechanical engineering, but uh, he went into industry. Yeah, so he's working for a company now. So navigating that can be a little hard. It, I, I would say it's a little easier, um, you know, having parents from Korea who really put an emphasis on education, right? So when I tell them I'm going to study more, I think that they understand that that's uh, important. But I certainly have heard from other people who got PhD saying, I was the first PhD in the family and people didn't understand why I want to do it. Um, as you said, people don't know that at least in science, a lot of times you get um, funded as a PhD student, you get stipend. So it's definitely better than some, you know, going to school without any kind of yeah, support like that. And yeah, I remember, I guess, I guess just talking about in terms of you know, reactions from other people. Uh, I think that when I said I'm going to go to yeah, MIT for a PhD, I think some of their reaction was, oh, are you going to you know, do a startup after and make a lot of money? Or maybe, um, oh, maybe you're going to join like a Wall Street after and make a lot of money. <laughs> so <laughs> always, always comes down to money, I guess. And I think that's the, kind of our social construct of uh, valuing our worth with our salary, not just self-worth, but also your professional worth. And certainly that's true to an ex um, extent. And I think that's something that probably has to be addressed in science as well. But at the end of the day, I think I talked about this before, but as, as far as I can tell, most scientists that I know, this is really their passion. And I think understanding that makes a lot of other things really not matter as much because at the end of the day, you know what you want to do. And this is um, not going to be deterred by certainly other people's opinions because you already have a lot of hardship to begin with anyway. Yeah. So yeah, I'm not quite sure if I'm answering the question right, but yeah, that's, that's my opinion. Yeah, no, this is great. It's, uh, it's really, sticking to what you want to do and at the end of the road um if you can own like truly own your career i mean you'll be working for maybe uh at an academic institution or something but still like you get to own your career in a way that may be not possible in other industries so i think you know it's really great to have that agency yes and i think it also helps to have uh, some confidence about as you said phoebe um, this sounds like a gamble, right? A lot of risk, high rate of failure. Um, and I think it helps to have certain confidence about, okay, like if in the end I'm going to follow my passion and dream to the end, and even if it doesn't work out as I imagined, I know that I'll be okay. I'm confident that I can find other things that I can do professionally and also, you know, in life. I think that helps. Definitely. I truly echo that. And I really hang on to that thought as well for <laughs> myself. It's uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a journey, but thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, you have to be really passionate to spend this much of time and effort into, you know, um, your field and doing the whole, you know, PhD and everything. Um, and this might be, you know, sometime down the line, but do you have any idea of what you want to do postdoc and, you know, any places in the world you'd still like to go to or you're kind of settled in New York? Yeah, certainly. So I want to be a professor to do research that I love, train future scientists and never stop learning. I think that's some of the perks of being like Damien, I think you always learn. And in terms of 
places that I would like to be. Uh, New York has been my home base for many years now. And this is where half of my family is. As I mentioned, my uh, wife's family is all here. So staying here is definitely on the top of my list. But if you're talking about any places uh, disregarding my career and family situation, then I can definitely think of some places uh, I have been to in the past or some places that I've never been to. So uh, my wife and I have been to Kyoto many times now. And we often daydream about living there <laughs> because oh, wow. of this beauty and rich history. Yeah. Uh, yeah, every time we went there, it was just uh, such a lovely experience. I mean, of course, being a tourist is completely different from living in a place. But I would definitely want to live there if I had a chance. And also, when I was doing research internship as an undergrad in Germany, I spent about two weeks in Berlin to learn German and just uh, kind of be with the cohort of the interns that I was with. And I instantly fell in love with the city. And it has been on top of my list for a city that I want to live in one day for yeah, more than a decade now, I guess. Um, never revisited, but I would certainly want to go back. Uh, in terms of places I've never been to, first place I can think of right away is uh, San Diego because I keep hearing nice things about the city, of course, but uh, in every step of my academic life, like undergrad to grad school and even postdoc position, I apply to UC San Diego. But every time I decided to stay in Northeast for you know, many different reasons, so I would love to at least visit one day, uh, especially now that my brother lives there. Nice. Yeah. yeah, I've heard great stories about San Diego as well. Like one of my uh, managers back at the bank um, when I was working in Tokyo, he studied at uh, University of San Diego and he said there's an ocean view. <laughs> it's so relaxing. <laughs> I yeah. think, yeah, um, it's, it's good to live in a place where weather is nice or you know just in general people are more relaxed <laughs> yeah i also yeah. hear about scientists like you know doing research and then oh it's afternoon i'm gonna go surfing i that wow. kind of sounded i mean i'm wow. sure it's like it doesn't happen often i'm sure and then you know uh maybe it's only some people but just hearing the idea of being able to do that just sounds very enticing <laughs> it does it does and another place that I've been actually thinking a lot about is Atlanta, because uh, diversity is really important to me, as I mentioned. And I hear that Atlanta is an awesome city with like much diversity. And yeah, I'm looking forward to visiting once we have a better hold of COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, on that note, um, can I ask how COVID impacted your work? And like we saw that you volunteered for the university's initiative or the response to the pandemic. And could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, of course. So I'm an experimentalist, which means that doing experiments is my bread and butter. And when COVID-19 hit New York back in March, uh, the research labs at Columbia University shut down for a couple of months. So that meant no more experiments. Um, fortunately, research involves a lot more other things like writing a manuscript to share your findings, uh, analyzing data you have collected during experiments, stuff like that. So I focused on the non-experimental part of my work. But at the same time, many researchers at Columbia University organized a group called Columbia University Researchers Against COVID-19. And during this challenging time to volunteer for uh, COVID-19 related work that ranged from helping at the hospital to building database for COVID-19 research. And I was lucky enough to be a part of a team that focused on outreach and scientific communication. So our team initially focused on telling the public the importance of mask wearing for the protection against COVID-19. and. We did this through creating a series of graphics that answer questions like why wear masks, um, why is mask fit important, 
and these graphics were shared through our website and social media accounts. Shameless plug, uh, follow us at Wearing is Caring on Twitter. And we also have Instagram, uh, Facebook accounts, and also a website that we put all our uh, graphics. And we now have shifted to uh, addressing mental health problems that have arisen due to COVID-19 and also COVID-19 vaccine. You know, why, it kind of similar to masking that we talk about, you know, why, why get vaccine and what it means, all these different vaccines. And I think that one thing I've been thinking a lot about during pandemic uh, was, I think, I think it's something that I have been exposed over and over again during my career in science. People always talked about, you know, science communication is important. Uh, outreach is important. You need to be able to talk to the public, not just your fellow scientists, because, you know, whatever you find, it will be more useful if everybody was able to understand and see the importance, right? And uh, when COVID-19 hit and a lot of controversies about science behind um, COVID-19, um, masks wearing to like now vaccine, um, it became a lot more real um, to me that is really important work. So yeah, I've been definitely enjoying at the same time, uh, learning a lot uh, through the process, working with other researchers ranging from you know undergraduate students to professors. So it's been a wonderful experience for me. Yeah, it sounds like this volunteer opportunity really harnesses that, right? Like translating the research to actual application to make it digestible for wider audience. So, yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's important for us, like as individual researchers, to be able to do that for our own research. But at the same time, you know, is this is something that I've been thinking a lot during COVID nineteen? Is that you know what what is the role of scientist? researcher or engineer who have competence or basic understanding, I guess, of the um, concepts of like physical sciences and whatnot. And yeah, I think it's important that we also actively engage in just communicating uh, with people who may not have as extensive of a training as ourselves. I mean, there will always be an issue when there is communication involved. There will be miscommunication, misinformation, other things. But I think that we can certainly do much better. And yeah, COVID nineteen pandemic definitely kind of reignited that issue within our scientific community. And then we should we should do better. And then I think we can do better. Yeah, I think especially you know for lay people um, who don't have a scientific background, I think it might be intimidating, you know, um, to kind of touch on, you know, topics that they're not familiar about. So um, with your work, you know, volunteering with the COVID response and actively trying to communicate your message to the public, um, like what were some challenges with, you know, communication that you found and, you know, sort of maybe resistance from the public in, you know, not, wanting to hear this message and like how did you kind of overcome it so at least in uh, my work with the volunteer group our strategy is to um, disseminate our message through social media and our website and certainly there are some interactions over social media right my role is an outreach manager so i um, work with other undergrads and postdocs as well, and uh, like post baccalaureate student to like manage just all the things that happen within our group for outreach uh, and communication. And I guess to an extent, thankfully, I was lucky enough to have very competent undergraduate students who uh, kind of took up role of different aspects of this project, for instance, uh, yeah, social media. I'm not very uh, involved in social media in my personal life. So uh, it's certainly nice to have another person who is more familiar with uh, all these social media platforms to manage that. And I hear about 
the interactions they sometimes have, right? It ranges from just outright saying, you know, you're wrong to a little more open to discussion about, I don't think this makes sense. And I think that the former uh, is very difficult to reach because if somebody has made up their mind and there is no actual communication. Um, so that's something that I wonder what would be a good way to address still. And I'm not sure what that might be. But I think the latter, the people who are willing to talk is in much better situation. They are willing to talk about it. Then uh, you can you can just explain or just just converse with them, right? You know what they think and what we think, and I think that's definitely helpful. One thing that um, sometimes bothers me is uh, putting like scientists in the pedestal. So I think one of the biggest setback during the beginning of COVID-19 pandemic in the U.S. was the message about mask wearing. So initially, CDC said, don't wear masks unless you have symptoms. And, you know, I thought, I'm like, I didn't even think much either. Like, okay, that sounds about right to me. And I followed through. And actually, it was my wife who was like, you know, I don't think so. This is a you know, respiratory uh, virus. That doesn't sound like a good idea. So, uh, Already in March, uh, my wife was like, I'm going to wear it and you should wear it too. So we started wearing and quickly the whole situation turned upside down, right? It really got bad in New York, especially. And, and I think the message changed to, okay, wear something, wear face covering, wherever is better than nothing. And that, that caused a lot of confusion, I think. In order to not make that happen again, I think it's important that we know that scientists are also just, you know, human beings. Uh, we all make mistakes. Um, and scientists are not immune to misinformation. Knowing that, I think, is important for both scientists because uh, sometimes we might think that because we are trained extensively in scientific uh, knowledge or the thought process, well, we can be more rational or logical, but that doesn't necessarily hold up all the time, right? We're, we're all humans. So knowing that I think is important for us to be more like as a scientist, to be humble and be open to kind of what other people may uh, say. And also for public, knowing that, you know, we, we are not, we're not kind of like this perfect being who can provide answers. I mean, part of our job, I think, is finding an answer, not necessarily knowing the answer. So um, keeping that in mind, I think is very important. Definitely, that's really helpful to um, just humbly acknowledge that as a person, scientists can have biases too, even though you're trying your best to figure out the global problem like a pandemic. And especially in times of miscommunication and misinformation, it's really important to know that both sides are still on the learning process and we need to evolve as we go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, you know, really great work what you're doing as well. And, you know, as long as you still are able to reach the people who are open to communication and dialogue, that still makes a huge difference. So, yeah, that's really great. I think we are almost wrapping up our session here. Yeah, and so what kind of advice would you like to share for future scientists? And if you have any other last thoughts, yeah, please go ahead. Okay, it's hard to give advice, I think, but um, I would tell them to be their whole self. Uh, this is not just some advice for future scientists, but for myself as well, uh, because I'm still trying to work through it. Um, in a career path that is so heavily merit-based, uh, it's so easy to disregard everything else within the career as well as in life. But I'm not just a scientist, right? I'm a husband, a doggy dad, a son, a brother. Um, it's important to be my whole self. And it also allows me to 
bring my different backgrounds to the workplace, right? Uh, like my cross-cultural background. And I think that can diversify our experience as a whole and work as a scientist. And I mentioned this, but diversity is really important for innovation. And I would be sad if people kept some of their selves at home. Um, it's an opportunity lost, I think. Last thoughts. I have been listening to your podcast and I realized that my cross-cultural experience can be summarized as adapt or perish. So I uh, feel like I haven't had time to reflect what I went through until I actually started listening to your podcast. Uh, so thank you. Uh, thanks to your podcast. Um, it gave me an opportunity to revisit my experience and how it shaped me as a person. And I, I, I must say that it was therapeutic. Um, oh my goodness, this is wow, really touching. Thank you so much. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh my gosh. Th thank you. And uh, I'll be looking forward to listening to you know, your future work for sure. Thank you so thank much. You. I, I really liked how you said have a sense of whole self. Yeah, it's, it's so true. Like, even though this episode or this season is focused on career development, I resonate with you and I really want the audience to think that it's career is part of you like it, career is part of your identity but there's a whole bunch of other identities you hold and it's so true what Jason said so thank you for bringing that perspective and yes it's it's really um it's great to hear that as like podcast creators that it's reaching to yeah like our audience to have that reflective moment so thank you so much yeah yeah, thank you so much. And I guess like I can kind of relate as well to your experience, you know, as research scientists, even though it's not exactly the same, but you know, me and Asuka started this and we didn't know where it was gonna go. So we put in <laughs> a lot of effort and time as well. And you know, the rewards could be huge, but we, it's also a lot of uncertainty. So, you know, just hearing that um, from you, thank you so much. Yeah, it really made our day. <laughs> So that was Jason Han, a postdoctoral research scientist specializing in biomedical engineering at Columbia University in New York. We hope that was inspiring for anyone thinking about a career in science or in academia. Thank you so much for joining Culture Crossings. This was Asuka and Phoebe. To connect with us, visit our website at www.2020culturecrossings.wordpress.com. We are also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time. Bye. Bye.